all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. When you look at your vehicle, think of MPB. Need to get rid of your ride? Donate it by calling 877-MPB-4-CAR. Need to have some work done on your truck? Listen to AutoCorrect Thursdays at 10, Saturdays at 11. An MPB license plate reminds you that MPB is with you wherever you go. Go to your county office and ask for an MPB car tag. MPB and cars, better together. Good morning and welcome to Southern Remedy. This is Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. This is your program where you can call in and ask any kind of healthcare question that you might have about yourself or someone else. Maybe it's a medication uh, problem that you're having or maybe a new medication that was prescribed you didn't quite understand or a new symptom. Whatever the question is, we're going to try to answer those this morning live. Or if you can't call in and you still have a question, you can always email us. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Well, we're into, I don't know if it's fall, winter, or, or a wall. I'm not sure what to call it in Mississippi. Uh, I just uh, was up in the northeast, and it was sort of strange weather there, too. It was uh, about the same uh, weather that I left, uh, but came back, and uh, Jack Frost is uh, moving on in uh, to the area. Uh, and I, you know, I am. I will stand by this uh, in front of all my northern friends. You know, they like to tell me, yeah, you haven't felt cold until you've felt it in whatever state, you know, Wisconsin or Montana or somewhere like that. But a wet, cold, and with the humidity levels that we have here in the south sometimes is just miserable. Um, it is really cold. Yesterday, to me, felt like that but when that rain came through and sort of a, I guess it's good Scottish weather. That's what we should say. But uh, I hope you were uh, bundled up there. Uh, so we're going to go to our first caller, who is John from Bentonia, uh, who has a question for us. Good morning, John. Hey, uh, Dr. Jimmy. Um, I... I, I want to uh, bring up diabetes and diabetes real quickly um, and, and, and just make the comment that, you know, words matter. And diabetes is the plural version of the word diabetes. So when, when one is referring to type 2 diabetes or type 1 diabetes, you know, really one should say diabetes, not diabetes. And I, I I brought this up with Dr. Rick when I worked at UMC, you know, in a previous life, multiple times, and you know, it, it tends to go nowhere. And what I what I've decided is it might be a southern, you know, regional dialect thing because at conferences and all, that's kind of what I see is people from the south tend to, um, you know say diabetes when we, they we sort of say our own thing sometimes people. don't we yeah yeah i think you're right john What's that? 
Yeah, it's and, and a lot of people, you know, and for the lay public, too, there's certainly several different, you know, medical terminology that uh, is is pronounced different ways, even medications. We run into that. And sometimes, you know, I, I've had work with uh, several colleagues that maybe had and I've had some difficulty with that. Uh, you know, I, I will say as close as we can be specific in that, I, I will agree with you. However, there are lots of things that we drop the complete term. So you can say diabetes uh, mellitus or mellitus. A lot of people would pronounce it that way. Um, But I think that even beyond that, that we all have a construct of what that means is important. Um, And uh, that's to me, that's the biggest thing that we know that. If you have diabetes or diabetes, that you um, that that what does that mean to that individual? And that's the most important thing. I think as a physician, we certainly you know can appreciate what that the, the, the title of it is. And and you know and I hey I'm at the medical center too, so I know from an academic standpoint there are many things terminologies that we use and teach medical students. And certainly I think that's the group where you want to be more specific with it. Um, but the meaning behind it is even more important. For instance, uh, crackles in the lungs, which is sometimes described as Rawls. Um, you know, a lot of people, I, you know, I know a lot of, uh, uh, cardiologists would say it's, you know, it's not rails. It's not something you put a train on, but it's Rawls. But, and I would say, well, let's just drop it completely and say crackles, because that's probably a little bit more specific in describing that. And it really doesn't matter that I think a lot of people get hung up on their own pet terms with things uh, and the way that they were trained. And really, it's the meaning behind those words that we should really, you know, I, I don't correct my patients when they mispronounce stuff in the room. Because again, half the time I grew up in the South, I'm a native Mississippian. I'm mispronouncing it with the rest of them. But I think as long as we're on the same page of what that means, what the impact of that is to that individual and how we can change that, particularly with uh, with diabetes, it's, it, it's the risk, right? Um, so yeah. that's that's the biggest thing. But I, I appreciate that. That's definitely, you know, something that we uh, need to be as correct as we can. Can, can I say one other Sure, sure. Um, basically, historically, I mean, you know, th- this is a problem. I think you're going to find in, in a lot of diabetic terminology, or not diabetic medical terminology, which is um, that you know that the disease was uh, historically defined as a symptom, you know, symptomatic condition, and and it's it's now lately been you know defined metabolically. You know, right. diabetes have you know is a perfect example. The Greeks, you know, said sugar in the urine, diabetes. You know, right? Sweet, sweet, right? Sweet urine. And and now we know that you know they're symptomatic, symptomatically the same. Diabetes, both type one and type two, and um, I, I guess uh, uh, pregnancy. What you know, I, I'm losing the term on that. Just one. gestational, but, uh, yeah. Gestational, yeah, and you know. They all have sugar in the urine, but they're they're caused by different uh, metabolic conditions. So you know, yeah. historically, you know, there's, there's issues with medical terminology. Oh, sure. Yeah, and it's it's always fascinated me, like the the terminology that we have for so many medical conditions and uh, medical terminology as it relates to the body. 
a lot of times it's like uh, there's a line from Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, one of the movies there, where it's like, you know, these piratey names uh, that we come up with, it almost sounds like that, that it's just so simple. And it's like, okay, well, that was describing how it was presented at the time. And it, I love the history of it. In fact, there's a book that, um, that I have called uh, Sapira, uh, S-A-P-I-R-A, Sapira's Art and Science of Bedside Diagnosis. And one of the best things about that book is it tells you the history behind some of the physical findings and some of the original descriptions of that and who came up with it. I find that fascinating, fascinating and you know, a lot of people do too. But you're right. I mean, we get more accurate, uh, you know, diabetes just used to be diabetes. And now we know there's type 1 and 2 and even our gestational, that there are differences metabolically and in the etiology of that or the cause of it. But there's also other types of diabetes. So there is uh, mature onset diabetes of the young or there's an incomplete diabetic resistance in a lot of, uh, a lot of ways. So... The translation of that, I, I try not to, you know, you, you want to get on the same level as your patients and make sure that they understand it so that it's going to impact them. So that's that's the part I think that's important about transfer and that meaning of that word, whether or not they pronounce it correctly, if they understand the impact of that to them personally and what they need to do to reverse some of those things. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the problem I've had with type 1 since grade one is 99% of the people you run into, oh, I know all about that. My, my granny's got sugar, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, yeah. and you no, know, you don't know type one. You might know type two. And, and, you know, there are some significant differences in how you can control the two. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. you know, and, and, and that's, that's kind of why, you know, I'm just saying, you know, when, when you mean plural, say the plural pronunciation. When you mean the singular, say the singular. And, you know, sure. there, there's appropriate times for both. For both. Sure, absolutely. Well, thank you, John, for that uh, that point and uh, clarification. Good discussion there. And, uh, it, you know, even like hypertension, there is primary hypertension, there's secondary hypertension, there's uh, all kinds of different secondary causes of it. So it's a lot more complex. But a lot of times, you know, to the patient, you know, how those things manifest, it can be the same. So uh, all kinds of different uh, to me. I mean, it's my field, but fascinating in the way that, that all these things came about. This is Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering your questions that you might have about any kind of healthcare topic that you are interested in today. We're going to go to our friend Sue from Beaumont. Good morning, Sue. Good morning. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say, I call it rails. That's the way I was taught, so that's always that's right. Thing, well, okay? it's it, yeah, and that's fine. You know, I don't I don't it's correct people on that too why. much. Yeah. <laughs> Go anyway, ahead, Sue. What's your question. What's your question? Okay, I saw this documentary on TV about this white guy trying to trek across the Sahara Desert, and uh, he was having a time. He had to, he almost died of thirst. And I want you see these guys. I don't know. You, you suppose all the Native Bedouins and things use mechanized transportation. How do they still have camel trains? Because I'm wondering why why are Anglo-Saxon people you're told drink so much water every day, but yet these native people there, native to that terrain, uh, you don't see you don't see them toting gallon jugs of water on their camels back. So is it different cultures and just different the 
what, what causes some people need more water than others? Yeah. Why wouldn't, the, so why, why wouldn't they need it a half a gallon of water a day? Exactly. You know, we that, and this brings up another point in, in medicine that there are generalities that we'll say, but for each individual person, it may not be what they need to do. Um, you know, you, there are certain areas of the world and historically that the people who have lived in those areas, you know, like the, the we'll just stick with the Sahara. So let's, the, you know, sub-Saharan and Saharan Africa is a good example or any arid um, uh, locale. The people who have lived there for thousands and thousands of years, they develop a mechanism so that they adapt to it basically so there's our bodies are great about adapting and there is a certain amount of adaptation in a person that say moves into that area but even beyond that we know that there are several adaptations to things like decreased water uh, and salt so that uh, your kidneys um, can uh, conserve water and they do it through a couple of different mechanisms so they hold on to more salt and we sometimes those people are called salt sensitive because, you know, if you're in the Sahara, typically salt's not readily available historically there. Water's not readily available. Well, your body adapts over time for that. And if you if you if a people group that lives there for long enough, they develop those adaptations. But if you move that people group to somewhere else then it's not going to be the same effect, right? So suddenly if you have salt that's readily available and then fluids that are readily available, you might have some problems there with that. Same thing if, you know, if, if uh, you took the typical white American and you plop them down in the Sahara, um, they can adapt a little bit. It takes a little bit of time to do that, like weeks. But after that amount of time, uh, even if you compare them to somebody else, a people group that's lived there, for thousands of years, it's not going to be the same. Uh, you can you, this it's physiological mechanisms that change. If you look at um, native individuals from Nepal, for instance, who live at altitude or in the Andes, they have different physiologic changes to their uh, blood cells and the amount of blood cells that they have that allow them to hold on to uh, to deliver more oxygen to their tissues at decreased levels of oxygenation at those altitudes. Now, you can do that. If I go to Denver and I'm mile high and I train uh, in a sport for several weeks to a month, I can have some of those same adaptations, but it's never going to approach the same degree of adaptation that those native people groups who are in those places have. Um, same kind of thing in the um, in the uh, southwest of the U.S. There was a, a Native American group called the Pima Indians, P-I-M-A, and historically they lived in very uh, nutrient poor areas. Didn't have a whole lot of carbohydrate sources. They didn't have a whole lot of salt or water. Well, now they have access to that. So if you look at them, the Pima Indians. They have way more incidence of hypertension and kidney disease and diabetes than the uh, than the non-native groups who live in that same area. And one of the theories behind this is now they have access to much more calorie-dense foods, and their bodies adapted over these thousands of years to hold on to those calories more. But now that they have access to those, that's why they have a lot of these chronic conditions. So, 
you do have to think about that in differences. And, you know, there's, there is some, a lot of research right now in specifying medicine to the point where we might contest different individuals. We used to do this with hypertension. So we used to get a renin level on somebody. And if the renin was high, renin is a hormone that the kidney uses to help regulate water and salt and blood pressure. If the renin was high, then we would treat them a little bit differently than if the renin was low. Well, it turns out it's not really that specific, and you can't really predict that in a way that's applicable to each individual. In populations, it might on paper and theoretically work, but you end up treating people about the same with blood pressure medications that we have now. But in the next probably 10 to 20 years, we're going to see a lot more of this specificity. In fact, I just saw um, a news article on uh, cancer treatments uh, utilizing immune cells from people and reprogramming them for certain types of cancers. And it's uh, low numbers that they've tried this in. It's fairly expensive to do. But basically tailoring somebody's own immune system to recognize cancer cells as foreign and sort of taking those out. There are natural killer cells and other uh, uh, types of white cells in the body, white blood cells that that do this, and you can enhance that to help them uh, with some of the treatment. But again, not prime time for everybody, but certainly um, we're moving where we can have a more tailored approach to that with individuals. So, Sue, that's a great topic to bring up and uh, certainly applicable. I'm not going to be in the Sahara, by the way. I'm not going to trek across the Sahara. That is that is not on my list uh, of things that I want to do before I die, and I probably would have a hard time with uh, water and salt if I did that. Well, I want, I want to thank you for that information. I, I didn't know all that. That's very interesting. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. You know, it's, it's also um, – it's also uh, applicable to the blue zones. So the blue zones in the world are those that you have people who live very long, who live very healthy, and they're very productive up until, you know, into their uh, uh, ninth or to even tenth decade of life. So they've looked at some of these, for instance, the island of Icaria in the uh, – in the Mediterranean, uh, Okinawa has a population uh, there that, that are in sort of the blue zones. There's other places. Crete, the island of Crete has another one. Uh, there's one on, I think it's the western coast of Central America, too. But they've studied these different populations to see, is it just something genetic that makes them more prone to live longer lives and have less heart disease and cardiovascular disease? And stroke, or is it something that that they're doing? And it's probably a little bit of both. And uh, some of the, sometimes you can tease some of those things out and apply those to other people uh, to try to improve their lives. But we can learn a lot from looking historically at different groups of people. It's also a famous one about Japanese immigrants after World War II that immigrated from Japan to first Hawaii for one generation and then the next generation from Hawaii to the mainland. And uh, classically, you can sort of see as they adopt more of a Western lifestyle and, and a higher fat content and fast food content and high sugar content, their, uh, their health deteriorates over those time periods because of the environment. Now, they have the same genetics, right? So within a couple of generations, you don't change that much with adaptations. But uh, when you expose them to different things, that's what happens. So some of it probably has to do more with with what we're doing with our environment and the choices that we make about our own health, particularly what we eat 
and our exercise patterns. And we're learning more and more about the social interactions that we have are very important. That's one of the other lessons of those blue zones. If you would like to email us, and you can email us anytime, the email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. I had another caller drop, but I noticed that the topic was toenail fungus, so I'm going to talk a little bit about that while we're waiting on our next caller to call in. Uh, toenail fungus or onychomycosis, we can be uh, specific with those fancy names today, um, that is a, a fungus, and we have a lot of it in the South because we're in a very humid climate with uh, relatively um, you know, mild winters, and it's just a great climate for fungus to grow in. There's several different fungi that uh, can uh, infect the body. They usually do it on the outside. There are some um, uh, derangements in the immune system. If your immune system is is down for some reason, if you have a you know a, a cancer, for instance, or if you have an autoimmune disease, or you're being treated with something, certainly you can be more prone to getting fungal infections. Diabetes is another one, uh, big group of of uh, conditions that you can you can develop that. But typically, on the skin at least, it can affect the skin itself, the hair, and then our nails, either our nails on our hands or our feet. And because our feet are in shoes most of the time, they're much more moist, and this is and hotter, and that's the perfect environment for a fungal infection, and it can affect the skin of the feet or the or the nails. If it is on the skin, either on the feet, the hands, or the rest of the body, not the hair or the the nails, you can, most of the time you can treat that with a topical antifungal agent. And there are several over the counter, you know. Uh, uh, there's uh, Lamisil or um, uh, some several others that are there that you can uh, that you can apply directly to the skin and they work pretty well. But if it's in the toenails or fingernails or the hair, it's in the matrix. The matrix is the part of that those cells that really make those substance, the keratin, and you really can't with topical preparations, even some of the home remedies. I know a lot of people will say, well, you just need to soak it in iodine or you need to do this or that. And that might cut it back a little bit and sort of beat it down. But really, to treat it appropriately, you'd need to give an oral agent for that. Um, And it may also help to remove that nail because sometimes those, particularly the toenails, they can be what we call dysmorphic. They can be really thick. They can be discolored. And uh, those nails, it takes time to grow out. Most people, their fingernails and their toenails only grow about one to two millimeters a day. Um, so it does take time for that to grow out. But what you're really treating is where they come out of the skin at that point. So you can see that part of it can be new. But a lot of times cutting those toenails off or going to see a podiatrist that can do that appropriately um, can uh, can help with those nails sort of doing that. The other thing to keep in mind is if you're treating that, it's not even just like a one-week or two-week uh, uh, treatment time. You really have to treat it for weeks or sometimes months to get that cleared up. And why even, you know, some people would say, well, it's not really bothering me other than it's just ugly toenails. I can cover those up with socks and shoes. Why do I even need to treat that? If you do have something like diabetes, you need to go ahead and treat that uh, because that can be an entrance for bacteria to come in, uh, particularly if it's if it's inflaming those that skin tissue and other subcutaneous tissues right around the nails. That's a, a, a point of entry for bacteria that can then set up uh, shop in your feet 
And uh, if you have any kind of medical condition that decreases your immune immune response, that can be a point where you can have problems. So that's that's another reason why why you need to treat that. But very common thing again. We have that in the South, keeping your toes dry. I know Dr. Rick used to say on this program uh, to dry off your feet after you shower or bathe, uh, and that includes in between your toes. And particularly as we get older and people can't quite reach those parts of their body, that's really important to dry those off before you put the socks on, before you put your shoes on, because it's just going to stay moist probably for the rest of the day, particularly when it's in our hotter times of the year. So a little bit about toenail fungus there, and some of them are very interesting. Some of them you can actually, they'll fluoresce. So if you put an ultraviolet light on there, there's certain types of fungus that light up. I guess we just went through Halloween. Maybe that would have been a nice thing to do if you have toenail fungus. But um, if you have problems with it, and maybe you've gone through a couple of different treatment rounds, I would suggest going to a dermatologist or somebody who can take a little scraping of that and then send it off for a culture because then you can know specifically what type of fungus you're dealing with and what agent you need to treat it with, uh, what what uh, medication you need to treat it with. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy Stewart with you this morning, and uh, we're just having all kinds of good questions here and topics that we're bringing up. Keep in mind, this is Wednesday Southern Remedy program, the original Southern Remedy. That means that the topic is all up to you. That's right. We have multiple topic options today, really anything that you want to bring up. So don't think we have to, you have to call in about something that's already been discussed on the program. You can always email us. Those at email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Or if you miss part of the program, you want to go back and listen to it, or you want to do it on a regular basis and you're just not able to listen to us live, you can always uh, access it uh, two ways. You can go to our archive, that's on mpbonline.org, search for Southern Remedy, and you can go back and listen to programs. Or uh, a very convenient way is you can uh, podcast that. So you just download your favorite podcasting app, search for Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio, and download that and listen at your leisure. It usually takes a little bit of time to archive those, but um, we uh, uh, that's a, another way we can reach out with that information to you. We just had a, uh, you know, this, I think this past month or uh, this month actually is Lung Cancer Awareness Month. And I did want to mention a couple of things about that. You know, lung cancer, uh, Mississippi still, because of smoking, uh, still lags behind the rest of the nation in deaths related to to, uh, to lung cancer. And it's certainly um, very, you know, I'm very sensitive to this. My grandmother smoked. My grandmother died of lung cancer when I was in medical school. And um, it's certainly something that, that can be prevented or at least mitigated in a lot of ways through, uh, number one, stopping smoking um, or screening individuals. And we have much better techniques than we had even 10 or 15 years ago of doing that in a way that can reduce the risk. And uh, one of the ways to do that is through CT screening. So there's a low-dose CT scan um, that has a lower dose of radiation exposure that is recommended for individuals who are at a higher risk of lung cancer. And uh, the U.S. Preventative uh, Services Task Force, that's an organization that sort of recommends prevention of different things. So we're talking about preventing lung cancer. 
they recommend this low-dose CT scan for people who uh, have three conditions. Number one, if you have uh, a smoking history where you've smoked at least one pack of cigarettes a day for 20 years or the equivalent of that. So if you've smoked two packs uh, a day for 10 years, that would be the equivalent. We, we call that uh, pack years. So it's basically whatever you smoke in a day, and we relate that as, as it relates to a pack of cigarettes, times the amount of time. So if it's a half a pack a day for 30 years, that would be a 15-pack year history. So if you have a 20-pack year history and you either smoke now so you're, you're, you're smoking right now, or you've quit within the last 15 years, and you're between the ages of 50 and 80 years of age. So if you're in, if you, all those th- three things apply, then you probably um, are going to qualify for that low-dose CT scan. Now, why get it? You know, a lot of people are like, well, if it's there, you can't really treat that, right? That's not true. And if you catch it early enough, most cancers can be treated uh, and successfully so that you have much less damage. It's when they become much bigger uh, or they spread to other places, that's when there's much more of a problem. So catching it early and having lots of different things that we can treat it with these days, uh, particularly surgical techniques that can spare a lot of the lung tissue, that's the best way to do that. So again, reach out to your physician if you're a current smoker, if you have that, you know, if you smoked... 20 years, one pack, or however many packs times however many years, if that number is 20 or more, and you're between the ages of 50 and 80, um, that's something that you need to check out with your physician so that you can get uh, referred to the proper people to schedule that. That can certainly save your life or somebody's life uh, that's near and dear to you. So I just wanted to mention that uh, today uh, that everybody's aware of that. We're going to go to Atticus from Nesbitt. Good morning, Atticus. Good morning. What's your question this morning? Uh, I have a, would like you to comment on uh, men's health. Uh, I've been reading some studies where they're doing on men age 50 and 60 where they have been uh, administering uh, human growth hormone, and they say that uh, their thymus glands are growing back and their immune system is having a better response. And uh, it's it's it helps in the uh, anti-aging process and so forth. I know there's some cautions about it, but I just wondered what your views were on human growth hormone. Yeah, yeah, that's good. To, thank you for bringing that up. So, human growth hormone is a is a hormone, just like it says, that that controls growth in the body, and it typically peaks out at the times of. Um, uh, you know, of maximum growth um, in in uh, puberty, pre-puberty, and in younger individuals. But then it sort of goes down over time as you get older. Um, th- they have investigated what the effects of um, this hormone and other hormones might be in replacing that and giving that hormone for longer periods of time uh, in individuals and what the effects of it might be. I would say in everything that I've read and seen, there have been very small cases where there is not the best evidence that the things, some of the things you brought up that it affects, but really it's much more subjective. So people say, well, I feel better. I have more energy. But when you actually look at it objectively and in larger numbers, we either don't have that data or it doesn't really pan out. 
I, you you did mention you know that there are some precautions with that. We don't really know what the long term effects of human growth hormone uh, replacement or supplementation are, but we do know that in particularly in some individuals, it can cause an increase in your risk of heart attack and stroke and hypertension. Uh, and those are because of some of those effects. You know, the, the um, if you remember, uh, there are some some pathologic conditions for uh, human growth hormone excess, and one of them is gigantism or acromegaly. So best, uh, I don't think I'm dating myself too much. Andre, Andre the Giant. Um, this is an individual, you know, unfortunately he's, he's, uh, uh, deceased now, but he had this and it causes you to be very, very big. But you, if you can remember some of the other side effects of it, particularly on the hands and the forehead, certain parts of the bone continue to grow and can cause problems. And they can also cause a lot of damage to your heart. Uh, you mentioned thymus, you know, our thymus, even if it's not, uh, that, that really doesn't pan out. I don't know why that would be a, a significant thing because human growth hormone really doesn't affect the thymus too much. Uh, the thymus is a gland in the anterior part of your chest uh, that's right behind your breastbone that helps with your immune system, particularly T lymphocytes. Um, but even it tends to get, uh, it's, it's very prominent when you're younger and when you're developing your immune system and then it, um, it really, you can't really see it too much uh, when you get older. But if you understand how that thymus functions in the T lymphocytes uh, that it's processing, you really don't need it there when you're older because those T lymphocytes live for a long time and be, interact with the other parts of the immune system. So it's really complex. I don't know a whole lot about it. Uh, that's immunologists that know all about that. I just know sort of a superficial layer. But I, I would be very cautious with these. And I know a lot of people are touting that and said, hey, there's tons of things out there on you know, advertisements saying, particularly if you're a male over the age of 50, you need to be taking this, you need to be taking testosterone or whatever. Be very careful. I've had some of my patients that have had heart attacks uh, doing supplementation like this and have had high blood pressure problems, problems with excess red cell mass to the point where it's caused a lot of health problems. Uh, prostate cancer can be another risk too. So it's not something that, you know, you just need to say, hey, we just all need to take this. And again, you know, what's going to be the quality of your life as you get older? We know that there are certain things that may not be as flashy or as easy, like trying to eat right, exercising, no matter how you, how old you are, can increase the quality of your life as you get older. And we mentioned those blue zones. That's some of the things that we saw there. They've also looked at different uh, hormone levels in these individuals, and they tend to be about the same as they are for, you know, people who don't live there. So... I would say, you know, just from a population standpoint, it doesn't quite pan out. And there may be very good reasons why those hormone levels go down as we get older. Uh, some of them may be protective in some of the organs that they, you know, that they affect. So that that's my perspective on that. Thank you. Okay. Um, uh-oh, we just dropped a caller there. And uh, talking about a whole host of things uh, today. And we mentioned uh, lung cancer risk a little bit earlier. I did want to say something that somebody uh, might have this question in the back of their mind. If you had that low-dose CT, who's going to pay for that? Is that something that you have to pay out of pocket? Or is that something that um, that an insurance company would pay for? Most insurances, because of, of the, the uh, benefits to the patients and 
again, the cost is relatively low as far as insurance is concerned. They'll pay for that. That includes Medicare. So it is covered under most insurance plans if you meet those three criteria. So, again, if you have a 20-pack-year history of smoking or more and you're either continuing to smoke or you quit within 15 years ago and you're between the ages of 50 and 80 – that's that's the criteria that uh, if you meet those, then uh, and a lot of people will screen through their their pulmonologist. So these are the the lung doctors uh, experts. So they'll make sure that you understand the risk that are involved with that, and then do the uh, CT screening if they if you agree to do it. So just take advantage of that. And again, your your physician's probably going to know who to contact. If they don't, I would say contact a pulmonary critical care doctor. I uh, know we do these. We actually have a, a sort of a little pipeline at, at the University of Mississippi Medical Center to, to do that. So, But other places uh, certainly should be able to do that, too. So, Dr. Jimmy, what's involved in a, T, a CT scan? Yeah, a CT scan is basically it's a fancy X-ray, and you lie down for that and go in a, in a tube that has an opening. So it almost looks like a donut. It's very similar to getting an MRI uh, but it is much faster and uh, much quieter, and it's not quite as uh, claustrophobic for a lot of people. So, uh, again, they would you would be in the donut in the portion of your chest because so, that's that's what they're looking at. So, basically, that thing spins around really fast, and it takes a lot of X-ray pictures uh, of your chest, and then it gives sort of a 3D composite of that. So it's like you're looking at little slices of your body. And you can see in great detail the lung tissue there. And again, they're looking for a mass that doesn't look, you know, like it's, uh, it looks like it's abnormal. Um, and uh, they could look at the whole lungs, both, both lungs on each side. And usually, I'm not sure exactly for the low dose CT, uh, but I'm going to guess it's probably 15, 20 minutes tops. It's not uh, a prolonged procedure or anything like that. Usually, it's probably faster than that. But, um, it's, and again, people who've had MRIs are like, no, no, it took like an hour to do that. No, that's an MRI. MRI is a little bit different. MRI doesn't use x-rays. It uses a magnetic field to look at the water content in different tissues. Uh, and it does have its uses for other for imaging other things. But a, a CT scan has the advantages of being cheaper and faster. Um, and, uh, and you don't typically have to give any contrast with this, too. A lot of people will say, well, they injected something in my arm, and then I felt really warm. Uh, that's not usually something that you would do. Uh, with this type, you can do that with CT scans, but that's yeah, that's what a is computed uh, tomography is the fancy name for it. So they use a computer and X-rays, and they reconstruct what those look like in tissue. And you can have this if you've had uh, like a pacemaker. Uh, they generally want to know about that. You know, sometimes you can't have an MRI if you have those types of things. But a CT scan it might impede how much they can see a little bit. It might sort of uh, change how much of the tissue they can see, but that's not a contraindication if you have something metal in you for having the CT scan. And we do CT scans on, you know, way, you know, for little infants all the way up to, to 100 years of age or older. So it's, you know, that's something that's fairly routine. Uh, I can remember, I'm old enough, when uh, when MRIs first came out, we had CT scanners way back then, but the detail with what they can see uh, and differentiate has gotten so much better. And it's uh, really amazing 
the details of of things that we see. It's not a hundred per uh, you know hundred percent hundred proof. I shouldn't say 100 proof, I guess 100% accurate with uh, detecting every little cancer. If it's small enough, potentially, if it's less than about a centimeter, uh, that's about the size, the width of your fingernail on your uh, pinky finger. Um, if it's you know much smaller than that, they're probably not going to be able to see too much there. But, but with that size or bigger... Um, that tends to to catch a lot of things. So that's uh, that's a CT scan. That's Kevin Farrell, our producer, always handy with a really good question. Uh, we started off the hour with talking about uh, really semantics and pronunciation, uh, and uh, sometimes I say things and I have to watch myself that uh, you know the rest of our audience is like, what did he say? That doesn't really make any sense. Kevin's always really good about saying, hey, what does that mean? <laughs> Because <laughs> we hear those terms a lot, so but that's what a CT scanner is. And interestingly, for our kids uh, and at our our children's hospital here, you, if you go in and look at the CT scanners there, they uh, they've fancied them all up. So it look one of them looks like sort of a a beach motif with starfish and all kinds of things hanging off the scanner, and uh, it's got sort of this decorative shell on it that's sort of three D and to make it much more fun. If I get a CT scanner, I want to go in the kid's CT scanner uh, because it's a whole lot more fun. They have all kinds of like LED mood lighting in there and all kinds of, of great music. So if you'd like to email us, we always um, read those emails and try to get back in touch with you. But we also, if you give us permission, like to share those for the rest of our audience. Uh, that email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. One good thing to do as we get into colder months is to think about safety. Uh, So think about those things that are going to affect you and your house, Um, certainly pets too, but uh, think of younger individuals and older individuals. Uh, Make sure you're prepared for that and to think ahead because, as I said at the beginning of the hour, we have huge swings in Mississippi so that I believe uh, next couple of nights we're going to dip down below freezing. So just think about the impact of that. If you have heating systems that you haven't used in a while, make sure you sort of test those out. Make sure they're working. Uh, Make sure you don't have any problems with those. Uh, And be careful with some types of heating, particularly space heaters uh, that can certainly cause fires or open flames from chimneys. Uh, Make sure that you're doing that safely. And, uh, and of course, making sure that your fire alarms in your house at uh, opportune places are um, are um, secured and make sure the batteries are changed in those. Just a couple of different things I would do sort of moving in and thinking about that. Um, the other thing to, to think about is uh, your physical activity during this time as we move into the holidays and interactions with people. I've got a lot of people that are still sort of hunkered down post-COVID I'm trying to encourage people, look, it's better for you to get out in some way. Certainly you would want to protect yourself and be safe about it, but it's um, very uh, instrumental that you have interactions with people in a way that's very productive. Um, I, it's it's not a good idea to just stay by yourself all the time, even if you have to stay at a, at a distance from people for whatever reason, um, it's much better if you can interact with them. So think about what your plans are for the holidays. And uh, if you think about reaching out to somebody, do it. We know that it's much better for our mental health and certainly can have some overflow to our physical health as well. Uh, mentioned those blue zones earlier. That's certainly one of the social interactions that they have, particularly as they get older has been viewed as a key component of staying healthy and staying productive 
I certainly see this with people who retire. I always ask my patients that retire, hey, what's your plan? If they say they don't have one, I'm like, you better get one. Because uh, if you just sit around the house and do nothing, you're going to deteriorate and uh, have a lot of problems with that, both physically and mentally. Well, that's about all the time we have for today. I want to thank all of our callers for calling in. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. You've been listening to me, Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell, and the podcast producer is Jermaine Flood. Tune in to MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.